When you think about God, where does your mind take you? Eventually, we all spend some time sorting out our thoughts about God. Is He frustrating to us? Is He too distant, too detached? Are we perplexed by His mystery? Do we worship and adore Him? Or is He a dictatorial bully? But for today, let's turn the tables. Here's a different question. What does God think about me? We'll try to answer that question on this episode of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Okay, Aaron, first things first, is there a clear distinction between how God thinks about believers as compared to unbelievers? Um, yeah, so I don't know about clear distinction, but God does think about them differently. In the Bible, God talks about his the deep pleasure he takes in his own children. Um, he also talks about his longing for those who don't know him to uh, to, to become his children, to, to turn to him. And so it's kind of like a, a, if you have a friend who you're really close to, you have two friends, one whom you're really, really close to and one from whom you're estranged. It's almost like that. This uh, you, you feel the same way about both of them. You love both of them, but one is experiencing your love. One knows your love. One loves you in return. One is estranged, and your love for them is this yearning, wanting them to come back to you kind of love. The Bible describes God as feeling about humans the same way, his children, um, enjoying their um, the relationship with them, enjoying being in their presence, and enjoying their praise and worship that they send his way, but also longing for those who don't know him yet to come into that relationship as well. So I guess the direction I'm going to take here is going to be in the context of God and how he thinks or what he thinks about his children, believers. So we can go in a few different directions. When God thinks about me, for example, does he do that thinking as my judge or as my savior? Yeah. Um, so what's interesting is for Christians, oh, I know that, so we tend to think of those as two separate things. God is judge and God is savior. God is mean guy and God is nice guy. For Christians, though, the Bible insists that God is our judge and savior and that they are both good. When we talk about God as judge, here's a, a fancy theological word. Um, we're talking about the doctrine of justification. How is it that we are declared to be okay? How is it that we are declared okay? God says in the in His great cosmic courtroom, "You are innocent. You are free." Um, well, that's a judgment. It's it's God as judge who says. You know, God is the judge, but his judgment is not guilty. Uh, God is the judge, but his judgment is, I am legally adopting you into my family. So God thinks of, a, of, of his children, both from the standpoint of judge and savior. And, and honestly, you can suss those out and talk about two different perspectives there, but really it comes down to being the same thing. He, he is our judge and he is our savior, and those are the same thing. So... Is there a difference between how God thinks about me and how he feels about me? Uh, I don't think so. I, I don't um, 
God's thoughts and his emotions are in sync. Uh, that's not always the case with humans. Um, T.S. Eliot talks about, uh, uh, T.S. Eliot is a famous uh, early 20th century uh, American poet who and, and uh, uh, critic, uh, cultural and literature critic, who talks about uh, the dissociation of sensibilities. He talks about how uh, one of the problems of modern humans is that what, what that means, the dissociation of sensibilities means that, according to Eliot, we have a really, really hard time thinking and feeling at the same time. We have a hard time being both rational and emotive. Or frequently, we think one thing, but we feel a different way. I don't think God struggles with that. I think that uh, um, uh, God's thoughts and God's thoughts are for us. His feelings are for us. God thanks love for us. God feels love for us. I think that he's uh, unified in how he experiences us. So I'm going to try to restate some something that you've said in the past here on uh, our show, and I'm probably not going to do it very well, so I'm going to just sort of crash and burn, and then maybe you can recover it before it uh, disappears. But we've talked a lot about postmodernism. We've talked about uh, the Enlightenment and how... Uh, at one time, science sort of occupied the center of the room. Right. And then we've said repeatedly that that's been elbowed out now, and we just seem to be focusing, centering on how we feel about everything, it's to the point that facts and data almost don't even matter anymore. So since we are evolving as a culture— as a civilization in that direction, how are we supposed to process a conversation where we're talking about what's the difference between thinking and feeling and God thinking and feeling pretty much uniformly while those of us down here are just a mess? Can you pick that up? Well, let, me, let me try. And if I'm not going down the trail you want us to go down, let me know. Uh, so thinking that that was a priority we put on us here in the West about 300 years ago. We are thinking beings. The solution to the world's problems is going to be human reason, education, science. There's a reaction against that in the late late 1700s, early 1800s called romanticism, which you're referring to. The reaction to that is that that's lifeless. It's cold. You, you can't function via math. Math's important, of course. Science is important, but there's way much. There's way more to the human experience than uh, reason. And so there's this reaction. I think about um, uh, some uh, um, movements in poetry and in music and in literature and in architecture where a return to feelings, a return to nature, a move away from the city, the city controlled by the Industrial Revolution, you know, in uh, 18th century England and the United States. And so there's this movement towards feelings being the real true answer. Well, in the post postmodern world, we think and we feel, but the most important factor to us is individual sovereignty. So some people are controlled by their feelings. Some people are controlled by you know, their thinking, but that's their own individual choice. And uh, it has left us... One of the fallouts from that, first of all, is that like like uh, and this is T. S. Eliot's point is that we find it difficult to do all of these at the same time. But it also makes it very very difficult to think about God and who He is. 
when you put a priority on reason, you'll end up valuing the rational parts of God. And some churches do this. The church that I go to, this is its tendency, is to think of God as a teaching God or a doctrine God. Uh, if you've if you uh, overemphasize, you know, if you if you take a romantic move and you overemphasize emotions, um, one of the tendencies will be to think and emphasize a God who is emotional, who feels love for us or feels anger at things. And, and of course, both of these are valuable, but there's a reductionist way that you can strip it down. And if all you have is this aspect of humanity that you personally think is valuable, most valuable, then what you've done is you strip down and reduced God to that element. Um, if we strip and reduce God down to our individual choice, which is the postmodern issue, um, th- this is why God is, it's, it's difficult for postmoderns to believe in God is because um, my individual choice is most sacred. And now it's hard for me to think of a God who is free to choose when I myself believe that's what makes me important is my freedom to choose. And so what you have is, and all of us struggle with this, you have my freedom of choice butting up against God's freedom of choice. And one of the things you can do is just not to believe in God or just to blow him off, just to ignore him in order to preserve our own freedom of choice, our own divinity, lowercase d. Let me play the role of the cynic here. Suppose somebody listening to us, they hear us ask the question, what does God think about me? And they say, come on, guys, God isn't thinking about you. God isn't thinking about me. He's too busy running the universe to be right. contemplating us individually. What would you say? Well, yeah, so that's uh, transferring. I mean, if, if God is God, then he's clearly different than us, else we would be God, right? Um, and, and frequently, I don't know about frequently, but the what's behind a statement like that is this notion that... Um, What's true about me is true about God. So, for instance, I can, I can only do, you know, two or three things at one time, and those not well. So, we're sitting here uh, re- recording this podcast. Um, I'm not mowing my yard. Um, I'm not having a conversation with my youngest daughter. I'm not eating a chicken sandwich. I'm, there's only one thing I can do at one time. Uh, God, however, is not trapped by that. And it's um, um, famous BBC radio talk that C.S. Lewis gave where he talks about, it's like, and this is not a great example, even Lewis said it's not a perfect example, but it's like a story that a man is writing. And in that story, he talks about a woman who walks out of her front door and walks down the street and gets into her car and drives to the store. Well, something's going to happen to her at the store. She's going to buy some eggs and then find out if she gets home that the eggs are actually rotten. Okay, so I I made that up. Now, in the story, the woman walks out of her front door. She does not yet know about the rotten eggs. You, the author who've written that story, though, from the perspective of being the author, you already know about the rotten eggs. It's imperfect, of course, because uh, there's lots of other things going on in real life that aren't just as simple as walking out your front door and going to the store. But but I think that it's a decent example in that it points out that there's a perspective that you can that there's a perspective of reality that we humans have that may not be what God's is. And, and the Bible is very very clear um, that God knows everything, that God is everywhere. And so to say He can't actually be thinking about me 
to say he can only think about one person at a time is to transfer what I know to be true about myself to him. And if he's God, that's clearly not a rational move. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, quote, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day, unquote. Aaron, if God thinks about me, could I in any way cause his feeling of indignation? Uh, sure. I mean, Psalm 7, 11 says he does feel indignation and... Um, very, very possible that, well, I mean, I, I, I would venture a guess that most of the time when the Bible describes God as angry or indignant or troubled, uh, it's almost always referring to human beings and what they've done. Uh, yeah, we can cause God indignation. Um, there's a, a fantastic book that I would recommend anybody out there to grab. It's a real short book. It's a real easy read. It's by a theologian named D.A. Carson, and it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And in this book, he outlines five different types of love that the Bible describes as God is having, and some of them aren't to our point, but I can run through them real quicker. One is the love that Father, Son, and Spirit have for each other. Two is a sort of a, you know the love that God has for his creation, the provisional love. He causes rain. And rain and sun, and he causes plants to grow and whatnot. Three is uh, the love that God has for humanity in general, longing for them to return to him. Uh, the fourth type is the, the specific sort of love that he has for his own elect children, for his own, for, for his own family, the people who believe in him. And then fifth is Carson points out from scriptures that there's a way that the Bible talks about love that seems to be... Um, sort of provisional and based upon uh, our response to him. Uh, Jude says, the, the epistle to Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God, which implies that you can you can do something to get yourself out of the love of God. Uh, J- J- Jesus says in John chapter 15, he says, um, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, which implies that if you don't keep his commandments, you won't abide in his love. Now, one of the things Carson uh, um, asks us to do is to remember that none of these are exclusive. You can never take one and say, oh, well, this is love. So what I'm saying here is for those of our listeners who are believers, um, there is a sense in which you as God's child are secure and locked up in his love. The book of Isaiah says that um, uh, um, uh, um, a, a woman with child could forget, I'm sorry, uh, not a woman with child, but uh, a woman with a small baby could perhaps forget that child. A woman who's nursing a child could forget that child, maybe, but your God will never forget you. He has engraven you on the palm of his hands. So there's a real deep, profound sense in which God's love for us is locked into stone in his son, Jesus Christ. It can never be lost. There's another sense, though, in which by not obeying his commands, we could cause him to be, as Psalm 7 verse 11 says, indignant. And I think that um, people, some people are like, well, it's got to be one or the other. No, it doesn't have to be one or the other. This is not the way the Bible describes it. It's not the way our own human experience is. Um, I always love my children. I, I, I always do. There's nothing that could keep me from loving my children. And yet there are times, there are certain behaviors that they, that they do that make me angry. And um, 
I, I, that's appropriate. And also, too, this, this, maybe this will take us back to your question about does God view us as judge or savior? There's a different angle on it. Um, we tend to think of the indignant God and the loving God as two separate things, um, the wrathful God and the generously loving God as two separate beings. Or, you know, I mean, this is one of the common excuses for my students I get for why they struggle with Christianity or why they think they have a hard time believing in a Christian God is that there is an indignant God, the Psalm 711, like God, like this God who would uh, be angry at sin. I just can't believe in a God. Like if God is good, um, like shouldn't he just forgive us? But it's important to remember that the anger of God and the love of God are actually the flip side of the same coin. A God who is not indignant is a God who does not love. If, if, if one of my children were to do something that was, was self-harming, I would be extremely angry, extremely angry. And in some senses, very, very angry at them for making painful choices. But the reason I would be angry at them is not because I don't love them, but instead precisely because I do love them. And the extent to which I would be angry at them would be directly correlated to the extent to which I love them. So we're very, very troubled with a God of wrath and a God of indignation. And we're also troubled with the notion that God might dislike things that we do. But the fact is, is that God dislikes sinful, harmful things that we do to ourselves and to each other precisely because he loves us and other people. And when we do damage to ourselves, his love causes him to be angry. There's an organic relationship between those two things. So yeah, it's quite possible that Christians make God indignant or upset, but only because he loves them and he longs for them to be happy and healthy and whole and in a perfect relationship with him. You know, I found 10 uses of the word think or its derivatives in the Bible. And in every case in the Bible, people were doing the thinking. I didn't find a single case, not that there isn't one that somehow I overlooked, where God is doing the thinking. So is it proper, is it right for us to, to regard God as a thinker? Yeah, I, he's a person too, right? I mean, God's not a force. Uh, humans think, uh, but God, God's a person. In fact, it's appropriate, very appropriate to say that God's a human, the, 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 the only way we can know God or even have any sort of intelligent conversation about him, the Bible insists, is via Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, Jesus thinks. Um, uh, God thinks. They have thoughts. They're, uh, they have conversations. They have emotions. They have wills. They have everything that's, that, that other persons like me and you have because they're people too. Well, that sort of transfers right into Isaiah 55. The prophet quotes God as saying, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Oh, yeah. Yep. Neither are your ways my ways. Yeah. So yeah, I guess he thinks. But it sounds like his thoughts are nothing like mine. So are we engaged in an exploration of unexplorable territory here, talking about God as thinker? Um. I don't think that that means that we can't think about God as thinker. In the context of Isaiah 55, if I'm remembering this right, and if I was smart, I would turn and look at it right now, but I'm just going to try and wing this, and one of our listeners can tell me if I botched this up. Uh, God is describing his plan to rescue um, 
Israel from exile in Isaiah 40 to 55. And he's telling them that the way I'm going to do this is not the way that you would anticipate this. I, I have the ways that I think of things, the ways that I procure salvation, uh, my plans are not the kind of thing that you would plan. In other words, like, don't be surprised if the unexpected happens. It's tempting to say when you're locked into any one given situation, it's tempting to say, well, this is the way it's always going to be. And this is, uh, you know, this is the way that, uh, um, this is permanent reality. And I'm about to do something new. In Isaiah 40 to 55, a couple of times he talks about this new, fresh thing I'm going to do. I think that's what he's meaning. I don't think he's saying, you know, you can't think my thoughts after me. I mean, after all, this is what uh, this is what reading scripture is about, is and Christian worship is about, and prayer is about, is this molding and shaping of our stories and our minds and our emotions to match up with uh, God's story and His mind and His emotions. So I, th- that's something. We're, but but what you're saying is a good guard, like. I can't assume that the way I t- we talked a few minutes ago about um, the, the Enlightenment overemphasis on rationalism or the Romanticism's overemphasis on emotions or postmodernism's overemphasis on individual choice. To assume that because that's the way the filter through which I see the world that that's the way God sees the world that's a super good warning. I, I really appreciate. It. But to assume that like I can't actually think God's thoughts is to, to, to be abandoned to nihilism, to hopelessness. God's thoughts, God's story is meaning and purpose. And to participate in that is really the only way that we can have meaning and purpose as well. So that calls to mind Romans 12, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, I feel like I'm in in the deep end of the pool here without a a pool noodle here. Um, Is this saying that the thoughts that God has that are higher than my thoughts, my thoughts alone, can be accessed because he renews my mind somehow and makes it a different thing? Yeah. Yeah, so exactly. We, we talk about this is an interesting conversation. Uh, it's kind of a surface conversation. It's kind of like a, a theology student one hundred and one conversation. In, in the writings of John, the Saint John, the Gospel of John, the letters of John, he says he talks about God loving the world. Uh, John three sixteen for God so loved the world. In, in other parts of his writings, he says. Um, don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world. Okay, so what is it, John? Are we supposed to, you know, is it good to love the world like Jesus and God do, or is it bad to love the world like you're telling us not to? Well, it comes down to the word love, right? Uh, when God loves the world, it's self-sacrificial. It's it's pointed out. It's his love for the world is for the other. And when John tells us don't love the world, he's mean, he, he means don't love the world in the way that we fallen humans tend to love things, which is, you know, I love cheeseburgers because I can consume them for my own gratification. Well, I frequently think about my wife the same way or my friends the same way. To to love somebody else or to love something else to consume it for my own gratification. So when we talk about transforming of our minds, we're talking about a transforming of us from thinking about 
the world in a way that's consumerish, that's the things exist, people exist for my benefit. I'm the main character in this story, this movie that is the story of my life. You guys are just, um, you know, your extras here. You, get, you show up, you play a little part, and then you step aside and my, the main story keeps on. Be transformed from that to thinking about the world the way that God thinks about the world, to thinking about each other the way that God thinks about us is self-sacrificial, self-giving, outward-oriented, which circles us back to the theme of like, what does God think about us? God does not consume us. The pagan gods consume us. Um, Philosophical systems consume us. The God of the Bible in Jesus Christ is for us. And to be transformed into thinking about each other and even thinking about ourselves in the way that God thinks about us, which is outward-facing, self-sacrificial love, is this renewing of our minds. So I'm going to ask, I guess this is a silly question. I'm going into territory where I should not go because I'm going to try to think about eternity, infinity, okay. and of course, you know, yeah. why even bother? But That's I'll, fun. I'll go ahead and, and give it a shot. I'm imagining the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, prior to the finite existence of this realm, this material realm, mm-hmm. prior to let there be light, doing whatever it is that they did or do in eternity. Mm-hmm. And then I can't say one day, it's not a day, I, it's, there's a moment where God says, I think I'm going to create a material universe. Is that a God thought? Do you mean, did God think that, or is that a God thought on your part? Well, because our existence is finite, right, yeah. and his existence is infinite, yeah. and in his infinite existence, he changed something by creating this finite. Right. Did he think about that and then do it, or did he think about it in his realm a billion years, and then later on just, okay, today's the day. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to grasp this. Maybe it's like the Holy Spirit is saying, just stop it. You know, just, yeah. my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. What are you trying to do here? Right. <laughs> I don't know. I I don't know. You know, we're not told the mechanics of it. Uh, one thing we do know, though, is that he, and I'm not sure if this is where you're going, Chuck, he now has made himself finite. He's written himself into a space-time story. So the creation of a, a physical universe, uh, which is going to result in space and time, that's something that he's now committed himself to. That is a God thought, is that for whatever reason, he wanted to write a story. He wanted to write a drama with a beautiful setting that gets messed up. And all the best books, movies all have this. There's something wrong that needs to be fixed. And he wanted to write a story where he did that. that that's he the wanted to God write thought. a story. Yes. Was that an idea? On the on the day before he wanted to write this story, did he wake up the next morning and have an idea? Did he have a thought? Is this a stupid question that I'm asking here? Is it ridiculous? Because it seems like it probably is. But was it a God thought? Well, yeah. I I don't know about the whole waking up the next morning and and you know decide. Well, hey, well, let's, I was being kind of silly. Right. There. Let's try this out tomorrow. But as far like this is what's in his mind, right? This was his this was his eternal decrees. 
This was his plan from before the foundation of the world. He chose us, Ephesians says, from before the foundation of the world. It's Acts 2 even says it was eternally planned that his son would uh, his son would die. So Genesis 2, um, even before the fall, God is creating man and woman, which Paul tells us in Ephesians 5 was the gospel, Christ for his church. That's what was happening in, when, when God created Adam and Eve. So clearly this is planned out. Clearly this is something that's coming from the heart and mind of God. Yeah. Romans chapter 8 says, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds mm-hmm. on the things of the flesh, which I interpret to mean think about fleshly things. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Right. So Paul's giving us a an, an invitation, maybe even an instruction here. Get your thinking right. right. Get your head on straight. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, for sure. So how do we do that? I mean, there are lots of us walking around. We think we've got our heads on pretty straight right now. Don't really need any help from the Spirit. Right. And now comes an exhortation, no, get your mind on the things of the Spirit. How does one make that transition? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so first of all, and let me just say as a precursor for, for anybody out there who's listening who might be confused, Paul is not saying there that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. He's saying in, in, in Romans 7 and 8, the flesh is shorthand for those who are still trapped in their, the fallen nature that Adam and Eve left us with when they rebelled against God. The spirit are those same people, some of, the, some of whom are the same people who have now um, been set free from that, who have been uh, baptized into Christ Romans chapter 6, and have been raised to new life, Romans chapter 6, and who are now uh, living in the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. And so the, your question, though, is how do, you, how do you live and how do you grow in that? How, do you, how does that happen to you? And the answer, of course, is in Romans 6, is baptism into Jesus Christ, to have a new identity, a new reality that shapes and transforms you and calls you its own to no longer live in the slavery to sin reality that the end of Romans chapter 5 describes, but to live in this new outward-facing mind for others, Jesus reality that Romans 6 through 8 describes, belonging to Jesus. This is actually the only way to get molded and shaped into this new way of thinking in a spirit way. Now, practically speaking, like what, what do you do? Well, on a certain level, it's just sort of basic. People who listen to a lot of a certain type of music begin to think that way. People who watch the same type of shows on Netflix begin to think that way. We've all had the experience of reading a book or watching a good movie and waking up the next morning and sort of living in the aura of it where it's still part of you and you're thinking about it. Well, you hang out with a certain type of people and you start talking like them, you start valuing the things they value. All this is just a necessary part of being a human being. And one of the things we can do is actually be putting ourselves in the spirit world. I don't mean the I don't mean the non-physical world. I mean the Holy Spirit world. In Christian community, so valuable. Who we are around transforms the way we think. If we want our minds to be thinking God thoughts, being in God's own community, being in the body of Jesus Christ, 
It's not perfect, of course. It's all screwed up, but it's, it is the way for our minds to be shaped and transformed. Being, being in Holy Scripture, being in that community, reading the Bible, making that story our own, starting to shape ourselves. Like we're, We all have the American story. We've talked about this a lot in here. We, we, we all have the American story in our minds because we watch movies that talk about the American dream. We listen to music that talks about the American dream. We go to school and we're taught in college, like, here's what you need to do to pursue the American dream. We have friends who are sharing this dream with us. But now to be in a community where the American dream is not the dominant story, but the story of God's mission to rescue his creation through the kingdom of Jesus Christ and how he's fleshing that out now with his own people, filling up on his word, living together in spirit-filled community. That's the way to start thinking these new God thoughts. New community, new story. That's the way to do it. So to wrap things up here, we started off our conversation by asking a simple question, what does God think about me? Pretty broad question. Can you give a simple, uncomplicated answer to that question? Yeah, and we kind of, uh, I don't know if we did that topic justice. We kind of danced around it and took little rabbit trails, but always sort of circling around the thought that God is so radically committed to rescuing his creation, including the most important part of his creation, his His image bears, his human creation. And um, just to emphasize, I'd like to emphasize before we end here one, one more time that God is so in love with his people, God longs desperately to bring others into his family because God loves his human creatures. Uh, the Bible is very clear uh, frequently that um, you know, God loved the world in such a way that he sacrificed his own son to create new sons and daughters when he raised that son from the dead. That all of this, all of God's, whether it's anger, indignation, passion, love, all of it is motivated by God's deep and profound love for us. Well, I guess I'll take this. I might have to re-listen to this program after Larry gets it all sorted out and, uh, and posts it. It'll make me think again. I appreciate your uh, comments today because I know yeah. this was a broad topic and and uh, when you got me asking stupid questions about if infinity and infinity, then uh, <laughs> that's almost not fair. It's a great topic, though. And I love the way you started that. Um, we talk a lot in here about what we think about God. But the most important question is it's, it's maybe less complex because it's always set in stone. Like our, our thoughts change. But maybe the most important question is what does God think about us? And to know that like he loves us. It's kind of the foundation for any sort of movement in life that we could have or thoughts or emotions that we ourselves could have. Very good. We want to say thank you for listening to our Craving Answers, Craving God program with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. And we encourage you to share your thoughts with us. Today's question came from a listener. You can enter your questions and comments on our website at stjamesglencarbon.org. Click Contact Us. Leave your message there. I'm Chuck Rathard. Thanks for listening.